Welcome one and all to what's known in broadcasting terms as episode two. The first episode of Moments That Rock, which is the title of this podcast, was devoted exclusively to one David Bowie, because January is really his month. It's when he was born and it's when he passed five years ago. So I couldn't think of anything more fitting than to devote an entire show to that. But this week, we're into a regular format. Let me tell you quickly what that format is. For a start, I'm your host, Tony Michaelidis, so I turn up every week. And you're stuck with that. We have a feature called Way Back Then, where we plunder the archives and we dig out some vintage interviews from uh, a long enough time ago, mostly from the 80s. Um, Today's is The Cramps with Lux Interior and Poison Ivy. We have a feature called A Man Can A Yank with myself and Steve Glum, which is based on storytelling. We have different stories from both our careers, his in marketing for the Hard Rock and House of Blues and stuff, and me with record companies. You can find more information on me on my website, which is listed here, but basically it's simple. It's TonyMichaelEvis.com. You can spell it, you can find it. And we also have an Insider Insights, and today's is a gem. We have a gentleman called Mark Radcliffe, an old colleague with incredible stories from George Harrison, Kate Bush to David Bowie as well. And you'll hear the first part of that later on. Also, the interviews that I did, I've cut them into two halves so that you get part one, which is followed by part two, but not necessarily the next week, uh, maybe over the next few weeks. And we have you two, Steve Winwood, a wealth of stuff to come. And further to all that blabber, I'm proud to say that Moments That Rock has been added to the Pantheon podcast group, which itself is the largest music-based podcast site in the world. So along with this, go check out some of the other shows, because there's a whole bunch of decent, good, valuable, knowledgeable, entertaining, interesting podcasts in here. But for now... Today's Way Back Then Moments That Rock is an interview I did with the Cramps when they came to my old hometown of Manchester in England in 1986. The Cramps were formed 10 years earlier, in 1976, and although they had over 20 band members come and go, lead singer Lux Interior and guitarist Poison Ivy were the mainstay for some 30 plus years. Sadly, Lux passed away in 2009, and with it, the Cramps. Here, Lux and Ivy, who were also a married couple, talk about the New York punk scene at CBGB's, the music they grew up on, together with their idea and their vision that they consistently maintained for the band throughout those years. In their time, they released eight albums, two live albums and four compilation albums and played hundreds of shows. Their final album, Fiends of Dope Island, came out in 2002 and their final show was in November 2006. So without further ado, Moments That Rock, way back then, brings you The Cramps. And be warned, this is an old interview, and they don't keep very well, and I sound like a dork. How do you feel in, in 1986 with, with looking back, and certainly in this country, there's quite an interest in, in what was happening in the mid-70s with the pistols, etc. It doesn't seem like that much time's gone by to me. I don't feel uh, older. Maybe I feel younger. Um, I think we're wilder than we're... Yeah, that's right. That's what happened to all those groups, by the way. All those groups that are around then spouting all this stuff about uh, how they were going to change the world and how screwed up the music business was and everything. What are they doing these days? They're all grown up with two kids, I think. Um, going back to, to your early days, I mean, uh, I find it quite interesting that 
there's the association with with a guy like Alex Chilton. But I mean, the story goes that Alex Chilton actually came to your shows and said, "I have to produce this band," rather than you sort of growing up listening to to groups like the Box Tops and, and Big Star. Right. Uh, he came up to us and we found out that he was, you know, he suggested taking us to Memphis and said he could get us into Sam Phillips' studio. We weren't really that familiar with what he had done at the time, and I think. Uh, and that was his, really his first, even though he was from Memphis, that's when he kind of first discovered rockabilly. Uh, <laughs> should I tell the truth? He took us to Memphis because uh, the guy that was that owned that studio was a homosexual, and, and he could get us in there for free. And so <laughs> we didn't want to argue with that. You know, he went After we did this, the sessions, he went to Florida with the, the guy that owned it for a holiday. Back in those days, you you were seen quite readily playing uh, places like CBGB's and Max's Kansas City and things. I suppose it's fair to say, Ivy, that the scene's changed quite a lot in New York. Has that got anything to do with the fact that you've moved over to the West Coast now? Well, it's completely changed in New York. Uh, frankly, I'm not even familiar with what clubs there are now, although I know there's you know probably 10 clubs in New York. When we were playing there, there were only those two, CBGB's and Max's. There were no other places to play and actually, in the whole nation at the time, there was no other place to play original material. I, I mean, we kind of migrated there for that reason, and I, I think other bands did too. And that created a real scene. That scene died. I think any scene can't last long. It's the nature of it. And, uh, I mean, now there's just tons of clubs in New York. I, I'm not that familiar with it because we live in L.A. At one time, it's just like the history of rock and roll. At one time, there were two clubs, Max's and CBGB's, and they were both just the scum of the earth, uh, poor people like us that were uh, that went there and played. And, and it was all you could do to get to the club and play and get home without getting beaten up by all the the other people. And, and now it's all kind of like chic, and there isn't really a lot, a, a really a scene of uh, it's been taken away from. Uh, the, uh, the lower classes or whatever you want to call it. You know? I, I don't know of any scene in Los Angeles. I wouldn't say any scene moved from New York to Los Angeles. I actually hear of more things going on in like Midwestern states. You know, there'll be bands out of Minneapolis or Springfield, Missouri. And, you know, it seems almost like there's more, even though, of course, you know, that might, by seeing that, you might be talking about three bands that, I, I don't know, on either coast, I'm not aware of anything. You, you, you tend to hear about things that are going on in the coast and they're kind of blown out of proportion when it's really nothing that, that really amazing. Like a city like Austin, Texas, there's there. I don't think there's ever been a time in the history of that city where there hasn't been a great rock and roll scene going on in a city like that. But you don't hear about it because it isn't Los Angeles or New York. You know, It's a great city, you know. Northeastern Ohio has always got some kind of weird scene with with people that all know each other and and their local bands are playing there. That's the kind of thing I really like is when local bands play and they all know each other and they all come to see each other play. It real great things happen then, you know. And and that that I think happen is right now it tends to happen away from the bigger cities in America. Certainly for for what people in Britain allegedly there certainly is a hardcore scene on the west coast i mean what about groups like social distortion and circle jerks i mean you might not like them yourself but surely they're doing something out there oh yeah you know, i think uh, uh in washington dc there's a real hardcore uh, uh crowd and and in los angeles and that's probably the the uh, those two cities for some reason those two cities are, the, are where it's where it's really happened as far as those uh, i think that's even died out a little bit uh, lately from, from what it was a couple of years ago. When you were growing up, Ivy, I mean, would I be right in assuming that, that you were listening to things like maybe 
50s black rockabilly artist. The first memories I have when I was real small, even of like girl groups, you know, 60s girl group stuff, because that's maybe being a, you know, a little girl or something, I identified with that. That's why I remember singing the songs with my sister and all. Um, so I really kind of discovered rockabilly myself in the 70s. Actually, I, I was always, since like Elvis was around ever since I can remember because my mother was crazy about Elvis and was singing Elvis songs and playing Elvis on the radio. But the thing is, those people were timeless with what they did that, you know, they were, you know, they couldn't be touched, you know. Uh, so whether whether I was aware of them when I was little or not shouldn't really matter. I mean, somebody who's 16 now should be able to uh, have idols with those people, I think. Um, I mean, the memory of Ricky Nelson is... Um, a memory everybody should know about. That's what's so great about making rock and roll records is that if they're good, they're timeless. Like a Ricky Nelson, like Believe What You Say by Ricky Nelson, you, you can't sit still when you hear that today. And that was the 30 years ago he made that record. You know, you can't say that about movies to, to a, as, as large an extent or, or about anything else, you know, that is, you could say it about rock and roll. You know, there's just something about the urgency and the tension and the beat and the... Uh, mainly the urgency of rock and roll record it's it's timeless you know it's never going to change i think people were more passionate back then than they are these days i think we don't we don't really like what what like a 16 year old today what what does he have today you know like when i was 16 i had elvis or or the rolling stones or something like that what does a 16 year old have today who does he have you know Six Six Sputnik or something. What, what does he have today? What, who does he have that he can say, "I'm proud of this. This is this is this is you know a spokesman for my generation." Who is it? Might be the Jesus and Mary Chen, who, who are fans of yours as well. I don't know if you know that. I've heard they're really good. I haven't I haven't heard their record yet. Uh, yeah, they, they, I mean they are good in what they do, but then again, I mean it's not that different to uh, to a lot of what was happening in punk. I mean, when you think the Sex Pistols were putting. You know, plant, McLaren was planting people in the audience to, to create fights and things. I mean, it isn't that new in, in 1986. Um, tell us a little bit about, about the fact... was doing that in, in the, the movie. Uh, uh, what movie was that where his manager planted uh, girls screaming in the audience? Uh, uh, Loving You is uh, you know, it's, it his second picture or something. So that's, that's always been around. That's part of rock and roll. The rock and roll is like a medicine show, you know. It's, uh, it's not all real. You know, the cramps have been the, the nucleus of the three of you for the best part of of ten years, and yet there's three albums proper and only five albums. I mean, this must have something to do with with the massive amount of of cramps illegal material on the streets. Yeah, well, we um, I don't want to get in great detail, but we were involved with a three year legal struggle, at which time we weren't allowed to record legally. So I mean, that was quite a chunk out of our lives. Um, where all we could do was tour, and that's what we did for all that period. If you uh, are man to be a rock and roll band as opposed to do what you're told, uh, it's difficult. It's difficult for any band, I think, who plays rock and roll and, and chooses to do that and say, this is what I'm going to do with my life. I think it's difficult. You're going to have problems. You, you'll have lawsuits or you're going to get entangled with something somewhere along the line you know if you're a band that's content with making a product and have a manager sell it and give you your pittance from it and everything you know you're going to have it a lot easier you know you'll probably have hit records and and uh success and money and all this kind of things if you if you if you have to have integrity and play rock and roll it's, it's going to be hard for anybody i think and, and like i always hear the <clears throat> 
a lot of theories about why there is no good rock and roll around today. People br blame radio stations. They blame record companies. They blame a lot of things, that, you know, why rock and roll isn't popular. But, but at this point, after all this time, I'm, I'm blaming just the people in, in general. There has to be a point where they, where they say, you know, like you were talking about, maybe a, a punk rock resurgence or something happening. I hope it does. There has to be a point where people in general say, I have some taste. I have some integrity. You know, I, I, I think about what I listen to rather than just hear what I, I get, you know. You know, it isn't that hard to go to a record stores and, and find good music, you know, and, and to be interested in rock and roll and to know something about the history of music, you know, or what's happened before, you know, two weeks ago. And, and I think uh, I, I blame everybody that doesn't get involved in music to that point because I think a society, a world without an intense passion for music is, is a very dull world, and I think we have that in a lot of ways you know, today. Rock and roll was a term in blues songs long before it became a dance or a music. It was first dance, then it became a labeled music, you know, after that a, a type of music. Before that, the music was called rhythm and blues, but uh, uh, rock and roll was a term which meant sexual intercourse, you know, all, all through the 40s and the 30s, you know, it's a very old term. And, uh, you know, it, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's evolved over the years to now, now we call everything rock, you know, I mean, and it has nothing to do with, you know, what it all started out to be in the first place, you know, which was a very, you know, uh, uh, emotional passion, passion filled, urgent thing, you know, that made it different from other musics, you know, now, now what is called rock, it could be any kind of music, any kind of mood. And it's usually just about some dull, depressing, you know, person singing about their poetry and the meaning of life and stuff when they're 15 years old or something. You don't know what the meaning of life is anyway. So there you have it. That's part one of an interview I did with the Cramps, Lux Interior and Poison Ivy from 1986. The second part will be coming over the next few weeks. Way Back Then is part of Moments That Rock, where we dig deep into the archives, dust them down and deliver them. It's amazing, really. It's kind of 30-odd years ago, and you sit, well, I sit here and listen to that, and it takes me right back to a time and a place. Uh, it was great meeting them. Lux Interior, like I mentioned, sadly passed away in 2009. He was a real character, but they're very... Um, passionate about what they do and they're also very uh, well, not so much critical but they, they look at the what's out there as well and they have their own opinions all this is part of Moments That Rock part of the Pantheon group of podcasts each week we'll mix it up so sometimes there might not be insider insights there might not be the odd I don't know way back then I've also got a feature called You Did What? which is ridiculous stories of mine uh, which, uh, well, I'm not going to tell you anything about them. It'll just be like a minute segment or something, and we'll sling it in the middle of this. The whole idea is that if there's one... Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons... Or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good. Well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. 
with Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. Particular thing that's not of great interest to you, then the next thing could be. Because otherwise, you just pump out something assuming people are going to like it, and they think it's shite. And we don't do that. I'm not going to introduce this gent, but the feature is called A Mank and a Yank. And it's basically a fireside chat with an old friend who worked in the entertainment business, a guy called Steve Glum. And um, we'll leave it at that. And it'll be a feature every week where we'll have a little chat that should entertain you. Over to you, sir. Yeah. So, you know, we've had uh, so many conversations offline. We thought maybe we'd put some to tape, uh, developed this thing we call the Mank and the Yank. I'm the Yank. Uh, and since uh, I've been left to introduce myself, here's a little bit about me. Career in uh, big brands, uh, many of them with some connection to music or rock and roll in particular, rock and roll memorability collection, you know, met most of my heroes, uh, fortunately and luckily. And that's kind of where Tony and I really connected first off was talking about rock and roll and live music and shows and tours and our favorite bands and people that we've met along the way, good or bad, good stories or bad stories. They're not all good. Most of them are. Um, but yeah, so that's kind of where we started this thing and that's where we are. Just to follow on from that, Steve, it was kind of like music that brought us together. I mean, we had, I worked with you too, you loved you too and stuff like that. But then I got to find out, you know, through those little literal, literal fireside chats that there's so much more things that you'd done. And, um, you know, when I decided to, to come on board with Pantheon and do this podcast, um, there's plenty of yanks, but I thought this was an interesting yank for the uh, feel of the moments that rock because Steve's got a lot of moments that rock. But for starters, Steve, just briefly, is there a particular moment in 
time, decade that was your favourite period that you think as we progress with a Yank and a Mank, that'll be something that you focus on the best? Well, I mean, I guess, you know, when I cut my teeth, you know, in music or the appreciation, I mean, I was a teenager, right? So that would have been, you know, the 80s and then in the 90s when I went to work in it. Uh, and then from there, it just expanded, right? From, you know, different roles and companies and brands and tours that I'd worked on. So, um, yeah, I'd say probably, you know, the kind of 80s, 90s rock era uh, is when I fell in love with music and, you know, my favorite bands that are still mostly the same, you know, good or bad. They don't make rock stars anymore, to be honest. Um, you don't get the shot you had back then. You don't get two albums. You don't even get two singles, maybe, in some cases. If you don't hit it, you don't make it. But back in those days, it was, you know, a different time. And you had a more of appreciation, I think, for writing and uh, music. I agree. And I think uh, I'd probably share the sentiments of the 80s and the 90s with you because it was a particularly kind of buoyant time for music. There were a lot of great bands that came out of that period. Now, we share a lowest common denomination, you too. You know, both of us like love that period. And, you know, you were involved with Springsteen's Boy, Miami, Steve Van Zandt. But for now, why don't you tell me a little bit about that growing up period where you just gravitated to music? Was it a particular genre, for want of a better word? Yeah, it was back in high school. You know, my, uh, my good buddy had a brother about four years older than we were. And uh, he had everything every rock album quite extensive library of records because he was already you know he'd already moved out of the house this brother but he left all his records so he just kind of went through and found all these really cool bands and then of course then the bands that were emerging at the time like Van Halen or whatever you know we would find on our own and then you too and then it was such an, a rich time to you know discover music so yeah that was the time yeah, I think it's interesting, actually, because I think um, more so now as well. I mean, it's, there's always kind of a, a relative, usually, if you're not a friend, that gets you into music. Because I remember my brother, who was a few years older than me, he was a big Elvis fan, so from Winkle Pickers to the hair to everything. It kind of made me curious about music, so I went the other way with stuff like The Birds and things like that. How would you find that? You're not going to be going into anyone's album collection because there's no album. There's still albums, but who has one? A, there's a different way, I think, now. There's a lot of good bands around, but a lot of them are hidden. I don't think a lot of the people that we'll talk about over the weeks will ever really go away unless people like us let them go away. When pop music came in, it started to take different forms. And there was kind of the Mersey Beat thing, and then there was this, and then there was that, and then, you know, bands out of San Francisco, and then it dwindles, and then something else comes through. There's always something that's kind of omnipresent in music. You know, I, I work for people who are music fans, you know, people like Armin Ertigan, you know, Chris Blackwell, mm -hmm. they started record labels, Dave Robinson at Stiff. They were like fans first and foremost. Yeah. Then the accountants and lawyers came in and, and it became very corporate. And it was about kind of, you know, quarterly returns. You come to it from a different perspective. Like you came to it, like, think of it. When I hear you talk about your career, you always say, you mean like I get to work for like, Bowie, you mean you're going to pay me and I get to be on tour? Like you came from such a passionate perspective as a fan and you're helping move records for all these bands. Now, 
some of them you met along the way, but some of them you were already fans of. And for you to be there at that moment in time, I mean, that's a, that's a lost art, I think, now. Because, you know, to, for you to be on the road with a band, in your little car, driving in the rain, to a radio or a TV show, to get a spot, to talk about a record. I mean, that's, you know, you've got an incredible passion to help these guys get to where they're going to get. And at that time, you don't know where they're going to get, but just to keep them moving on. And, you know, I'm sure they're appreciative of it because they don't have, they never probably had a guy like you who could take them to that kind of a setup. So, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a wonderful, I think, you know, kind of story to tell and, and to, to talk about that moment in time about how, artists became who they would eventually become and it doesn't happen without guys like you but that's really interesting Steve. thank you for the compliment i kind of look back on things now and i'm more appreciative now that it's not there than when you're in it because it comes a bit of a roller coaster it's what happens every day seven days a week i grew up learning my trade as bands like you two grew up learning theirs mm -hmm. and there's a trust that builds i think artist development is a really good area to explore because that's what doesn't happen it's kind of like everything's about a quick return now yeah. and I don't see that ever changing. So the industry is a bit different, but I think we should leave it there for today. That concludes episode one of A Mank and a Yank. We'll be back next week. I'd like to tell you what with, but no real clue. I was Tony Michaelides. He was and still is Steve Glum. Now we'll revert to the rest of Moments That Rock. So here we are on Way Back Then, and what better time to talk to my old buddy, Mark Radcliffe. Mark Radcliffe is very well known in the UK, which is obviously where I'm from, um, from many years as a broadcaster, producer, etc., etc. But I'll hand over to Mark to give us a, like, a little resume of uh, your career. Yeah, well, I started on a local radio station in Manchester um, in 1979. So it's a great time to be working in radio in Manchester because all the kind of Joy Division and Factory Records and all those kind of things were happening. And uh, so I last year celebrated 40 years in radio and that took me to uh, the uh, national stations, Radio 1, I used to do a daytime show there, Radio 2, uh, now BBC Six Music, I'm on the uh, telly doing the Glastonbury Festival, not this year obviously, um, and uh, along the way I've kind of, you know, written a few books and uh, produced a lot of things as you have said and um, managed to have got away with it for all this time. So You always have been a great storyteller, but in all the time that you've been doing broadcasting and, and media as such, um, you must have some really special moments that, you know, are more than you too, because they're, they're like people you grew up with, maybe. The biggest thing, really, that could ever happen to me happened to me, which is that I became, I certainly wouldn't call myself a friend, but I became an acquaintance of David Bowie's. And, um, you know, the idea that David Bowie, I remember buying Ziggy Stardust when, uh, when it came out, you know, with the round, uh, the money I got from my paper round, um, which, um, you know, and, and listening to that and thinking, this is amazing, this has changed my world, this music. And the idea that that bloke who was making this record, the biggest star in the world for me, the, the idea that that record that I bought and listened to lying on my bed, um, that one day that guy would be um, in rooms with me saying, oh, hey, Mark, how are you doing? You know, and it's like David Bowie knows my name. It's unbelievable. 
And um, I do, uh, I, I do cherish those times that I spent with him. You know, I did about three or four radio shows with him. I did a big long interview with him in New York. Um, I uh, did a TV show with him. Um, I could email him. He sent me a quote for one of the uh, the front of one of my books. I have about three or four David Bowie albums uh, here signed, um, including Ziggy Stardust. You know, which is just amazing. And um, of course, my um, we we once I once introduced him on stage at a festival at Old Trafford Cricket Ground in Manchester, where Lancashire County Cricket Club. Um, and um, it had been pouring down all day and uh, I didn't have a dressing room and so I'd been put to uh, sort of while away the time in a little room at the end of the dressing room uh, corridor um, which had um, me in it, some chairs and tables and an electric fire and all the drinks that were going into all the other dressing rooms. Now it was pouring with rain, what would you have done? And uh, the other bands on were like Suede and the Divine Comedy and the Electric Soft Parade and everything. And that afternoon, David Bowie had been on my um, radio show and I said, I'm introducing you tonight. Um, I said, do you usually have an introduction tape? Um, he said, I do, yeah, why? I said, oh, because, you know, I just wanted to introduce you and then say, ladies and gentlemen, David Bowie and you walk on and shake my hand and start. That'd be the greatest moment of my life in my home city. And he said, okay, fine, because he was a nice guy. He said, I'll skip the tape tonight, no problem. So of course, the trouble is it had been raining all day and I was absolutely paralytic drunk by the time I got <laughs> on. And, some, and, someone, and, and someone said to me uh, just before I went on, it was being sponsored by our local paper, the Manchester Evening News. And uh, they said, can you mention that the Manchester Evening News is 10 pence on a Friday? I said, well, it's not exactly what I was going to say when introducing <laughs> me rock and roll hero, but yeah, I'll try and get it in. Um, anyway, so I went on stage and I, at that point, you've introduced bands. You know, you know the prime rule is just get on and get off because people have been waiting all day. So maybe, maybe up to 30 or 40 seconds. Well, my intro to David Bowie at Old Trafford in the pouring rain is eight and a half minutes. <laughs> oh my and, God. And at the end of that eight and a half minutes, you're no wiser than you were at the beginning of it, except for the fact that the Manchester Evening News is 10 pence on a Friday. And I think that David Bowie somehow would have gone to his grave knowing that the Manchester Evening News was 10 pence on a Friday. But mystified, and David Bowie's he's thinking, God, I've dropped my intro tape for this. Um, and uh, mystifyingly, he then asked me to introduce him again at the Hammersmith Odeon, the first time he played it since he retired Ziggy Stardust all those years earlier. So that day, um, I sat on my own in a room and had coffee and didn't touch any drink and got on and off and did the job properly. So um, I'm glad. But that day at the Hammersmith Odeon, um, I got there early and um, the tour manager was there and he said, oh, David wants to see you. So I said, oh, God, it's like going to the headmaster's office. Perhaps he's going to tell me off for what I did at Old Trafford and who could blame him. But I got into the dressing room and David Bowie was there. He had a pair of sort of beige, like the sand coloured jeans on and a corduroy uh, bomber jacket. And he said, oh, he said, I don't know what to play tonight. I've been looking at this and he got this list out, handwritten list saying, uh, he said, I don't know whether to put Ziggy Stardust there or shall I do changes there and then hang on to yourself there before Heroes. And I'm like, David Bowie's sitting opposite me with a handwritten list. He's asking me what order the set should go in. I'm like, this is just blowing my mind. I mean, I, I tried to be as casual as I could, but that was one of those moments where you think and give thanks for what a remarkable life you had because I was just a kid like millions of other kids who liked David Bowie's records. And yet my life had taken him to, to that situation. And that's still 
that I still find that amazing and a very vivid memory. Yeah. A very significant person in my life. You know, when he died, I was, my world sort of shifted slightly on its axis. You know, I wasn't sort of thrown into, you know, floods of tears or anything. But I remember hearing it on the radio and I turned the radio on and I actually wasn't quite sure who they were talking about. And so I thought, oh, yeah, well, someone in rock and roll's died because someone in rock and roll dies every day because most yeah. of them are getting old. Um, and, the, and the end of it, so I was making a cup of tea and they said, so there you go. That's confirmation that David Bowie has died. I'm like, what? And I absolutely stopped in my tracks. And then I looked at my phone because obviously I've had radio shows and in the media and everybody knew I knew him and I was a massive fan. And of course, my phone was chock full of um, all these requests. Could I do this? Could I do the BBC breakfast? Could I do these things? But I said no to all of them because I had my own radio show that afternoon. I thought, well, I've got an outlet here. I can get this exactly right and say what I want to say and play what I want to play. And I thought, and they, you know, they say, well, can you go on the breakfast show, like the morning shows, like they are in America, like they are all over the world, you know, which are news programs with kind of musical items and arts items in them. And I knew what it had been like. I would have been on... Um, and I'd have had three minutes between the weather and, you know, um, an item about someone breeding chinchillas or something. And so I thought, I can't possibly do it in that time. I can't, po it means so much to me. I'd rather say nothing than say something, you know, just rushed and off the cuff. I want to think about this, you know, and do it my own way. So I didn't do anything about it at all outside my own programs and you know i think it's marvelous that he finished with such a great record you know oh. he finished on a, on a creative high um uh, but you know i still find it sad and i still find it sad thinking there's never going to be a new david bowie album it's like listening to myself here because the thing is I, I don't not only will there not be a new david bowie record there won't ever be an artist like him again there's 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 rock stars and then there's bowie because people sell a lot more records yeah. than him, but there's nothing to compare. Yeah. I mean, how many people, for instance, I mean, we'll move away from this in a second, but how many people, for instance, in the 70s were struggling with their sexuality, let alone music and, and everything else that he was doing? But he was kind of mm. that little risque that, that he didn't say yes, he didn't say no, but he kept everybody guessing. It was on top of the pops, the big British TV show, and when he put his arm around Mick Ronson's neck and they sort of sang together in one mic and looked into each other's eyes. People were like, oh, hello, what's going oh, on yeah. here then? You know, and it yeah. was, it's hard to imagine now, but it was a really kind of revolutionary moment. And uh, you're right. I mean, he did play with all kinds of um, ideas about roles and androgyny and sexuality. And um, yes, I mean, it was, you know, he was just... He was always ahead of the times, you know. I mean, he just, and he, right to the very end, he made records that sounded like no one else's and that just seemed to exist in their own world. Well, what a great storyteller. My old mate, Mark Radcliffe, who I've known for some 40-odd years now. And um, his insider insights. Way Back Then is part of Moments That Rock, where we dig deep into the archives, dust them down and deliver them. More archive interviews next week. And as the curtain falls, it's time to say goodbye. Hope you enjoyed episode two of Moments That Rock. We'll be back next week. Subscribe, share. Let's keep this trainer rolling. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.